Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am not Justin Lee Burke. I'm Edward Wallace Cordy here with Sydney Hausman Angle. Hello. And tonight we are back with another Fables from the Cribside, our second episode. But before we get started, Sydney, can you remind the audience what we would normally do on this show? Absolutely. I'd love to. We are the pediatric medicine. Normally, we interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we're doing some of that, as well as summarizing a lot of those clinical pearls that have been taught to us before. That's right. And I think one thing we're trying to do on these Fables from the Crib Side episodes, uh, trademark, by the way, we came (laughs) up with that name independent from the tales from the curbside, from the curbsiders. Uh, One thing that we're trying to do is get into content quickly, but I understand that Sydney has a pick of the week and I'm going to try to come up with one too. Oh, all right. Okay. So my pick of the week, um, very cliche, but very wonderful because it is currently late September when we're recording this. My pick of the week is fall in New England. And I'm picking it first because the leaves are absolutely amazing. My drive back tonight was wonderful. And second, because I am desperately trying to convince my brother, who is currently an MS3, to come here for residency. So if you're listening, fall in New England is great. What do you got? No, that's, it's true. I've been there maybe once in the fall. It is amazing. I think I'm going to go kind of on brand. I'm going to go with oat milk. Vanilla latte. That's going to be my pick of the week. I've had several this week because I was uh, out of coffee at home, and then it was an excuse to go buy uh, kind of a special drink. So it's been keeping me going. Uh, that sounds great. It's also a good excuse to not buy coffee anymore. <laughs> so true. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Should we dive into um, content? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So we're going to cover two episodes today. Um, We're going to cover HIV, mostly about the kind of HIV for primary care pediatrician, but also getting into some details. Um, But first, we're going to cover childhood leukemia. So they're both kind of heavy topics, but I think we have a lot of positive things to take from these episodes, don't you think? I agree. All right. So let's start with the leukemia episode. Our guest... Uh, on this episode was Tanya Watt, and she gave us so much great information. It was this episode was written and produced by me and Nick Lee, Twitter Nick Lee MD. Love that <laughs> Twitter name. And he got us into the kind of starting of leukemia with the history and physical um, things that we wanted to look out for. And Dr. Watt told us that several weeks of a waxing and waning fever, really not normal. I mean, and that's something that I think most of us would have our antenna up for, but um, she confirmed that and she said, you need to be broadening your differential from a virus if there's several weeks of a, a waxing and waning fever. So aside from that waxing and waving fever, can you talk a little bit more about some of the other symptoms that might clue a, or symptoms or signs that might clue a provider into a potential diagnosis of leukemia? 
Yeah, definitely. So uh, she talked about bone pain being a common complaint. Um, she said that often parents will come to the primary care pediatrician telling telling the pediatrician that their child's having growing pains, not uncommon. And then bruising, uh, particularly, she Dr. Watt said, look for bruising in places that you don't normally see it, like the abdomen or the back. And and each of those each of these is just one data point. You know, like if you just have a fever for a week, maybe that's not as concerning. But if you fever and bruising and bone pain, you might want to start thinking about more of a workup. The other two things that she mentioned were petechiae, which is really never normal. And then she said, if you're starting to think about the diag- uh, a uh, diagnosis of either leukemia or another malignancy, or really if you just have any of these signs or symptoms, um, that you want to do a very thorough lymph node exam when when you do the physical exam. Yeah, and um, I know she talked a little bit, not too much, but a little bit about some of the risk factors. Obviously, we need to have a high suspicion for any kid that presents with these symptoms, but are there specific kids that we should be looking out for these things a little bit more closely? Yes, and it was interesting to hear that really the risk factors for leukemia, mostly genetic conditions, um, there aren't too many modifiable risk factors that uh, that she mentioned uh, that we should pay attention to, but we definitely have to always remember trisomy 21 Down syndrome. It has a 15 times increased risk of I leukemia. found that number completely astounding. I feel like I had heard at some point that Down syndrome increased risk, but the 15 times is just an insane statistic. Yeah. So we have to always remember that. Um, And then a couple less, slightly less common conditions, but Fanconi anemia and Klinefelter syndrome also confer an increased risk of leukemia. Okay. And so say you're seeing one of these patients with presenting with these symptoms in an emergency room setting. Can you talk a little bit about the workup that she was suggesting? For sure. So right off the bat, uh, you would get a CBC. And, and normally in a, diag- a diagnosis of leukemia, you'll have a very high white count, like over 50,000 would be a, not an uncommon white count for a new diagnosis of leukemia. I, I found it interesting that she kind of reinforced that a normal CBC is reassuring because I think that some of the time it's hard to feel like you've actually been able to say, okay, this is probably not a malignancy. And so to be able to say that a fully normal CBC is, is relatively reassuring was helpful to me in primary care setting. And then, you know, you mentioned that over 50,000 is often the sign. She, I think, also talked about the fact that anything over 20,000, you do need to start to be concerned. There are definitely infections that can raise the white count to that level, but that's certainly a number that warrants further investigation. Absolutely. And, you know, she, I think in very true oncologist fashion, really said, you know, never say never. So if you're concerned enough about a a child with a slightly elevated white count or a lower white count than you expect, for example, then you still might want to go to the next steps of workup. Absolutely. And can um, you talk a bit about what those next steps are? Yes. Um, And in particular, when you're headed towards a diagnosis of leukemia, so let's say the patient is in the emergency room, they had a CBC with a white count of uh, 150,000. There are a few things you want to get right away. So a chest x-ray, tumor lysis labs. So that's going to be potassium, phosphate, calcium, uric acid, LDH, Um, And then a DIC panel as well, PT, PTT, INR, and fibrinogen. 
eventually you'll do an LP, but then you should also do a testicular exam right away. And one one point I took away, which I found interesting, the reason you do that chest X-ray at the beginning is because you do need to rule out a mediastinal mass before you are doing the spinal tap and before you're doing the bone marrow biopsy. It's important to kind of have that baseline before you're moving in that direction. Absolutely. If you're going to do, um, you know, she was uh, very clear about the need for some sedation for the spinal tap and the bone marrow biopsy. And uh, you need to know if there's a concern, an airway concern before any sedation is on board. So, you know, she said making the actual diagnosis 20 to 25% blasts in the bone marrow is diagnostic. You can say this child has leukemia. Um, but sometimes you might even see this in the periphery and you can pretty much make the diagnosis without a bone marrow. And she just further broke down what types of leukemia show up. So Dr. Watt told us that two-thirds of leukemia is lymphoid, meaning in children, pretty much meaning ALL, and two-thirds of the lymphoid leukemia are B-cell leukemias, making one-third of those T-cell leukemias. And then overall, one-third of leukemias are myeloid. Generally, that's referring to AML, acute myeloid leukemia in that case. I really appreciated her breakdown of the different kinds of leukemia as someone who doesn't have a huge background with it. I think um, I do recommend going back, honestly, and listening to the full episode because I found it very helpful for me. A lot of times those uh, names just kind of seem like acronyms, AML, ALL, just like lots of letters. So I found that really, really helpful. Totally agree. Edward, can you talk a little bit, this is kind of getting away from the usual structure we do of history, diagnosis, physical, et cetera, but can you talk a little bit about tumor lysis syndrome? Because I think that she did a pretty interesting deep dive into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it. I think tumor lysis syndrome is significant enough to take some time, have it on the side as, you know, when are we, you know, to understand when we're expecting it, really. Dr. Watt was most concerned for tumor lysis syndrome just at a baseline with Burkitt lymphoma. Burkitt lymphoma is the one where tumor lysis syndrome will happen even before chemotherapy started. But in addition, AML and ALL that have white blood cell counts uh, above 100,000 are considered high risk for tumor lysis syndrome. And what's really happening here is Malignant cells, which can be different depending on the type of leukemia, release potassium, phosphate, and nucleic acids. Those nucleic acids become uric acid. And those products have downstream effects um, on different parts of our body. So for hyperkalemia, it's the same things you know we worry about in anybody with hyperkalemia, uh, cardiac arrhythmia and death, potentially. Hyperphosphatemia, we worry about calcium phosphate formation um, and AKI. Plus, you could get hypocalcemia from that, which can, you know, cause its own complications. And then hyperuricemia, which can cause its own uric acid, its own crystals made out of uric acid and also AKI. So really we're we're worried about protecting the heart from cardiac arrhythmia and protecting the kidneys from calcium phosphate crystals and uric acid. So just on the hyperkalemia briefly, we want to you know have calcium gluconate around if if a patient has a concern for tumor lysis syndrome and we want to have insulin around we want to have all of our hyperkalemia things on our mind because that's like one of those not miss potential deadly things based on you know the sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say what about kind of the management of some of those other components of tumor lysis syndrome 
Right. And, you know, the hydration is a huge part of it. 1.5 to 2 times maintenance IV hydration is standard, and that's for renal protection. And if somebody has high-risk disease, actually it's recommended to start allopurinol to reduce the risk of uric acid uh, elevations. And if the patient gets there and they already have uh, hyperuricemia, in that case, you would be starting resburicase to bring it down. And then finally, this actually happened last month. We asked the oncologist, a new patient with new ALL, we asked an oncologist in the PICU if we, um, I think we, I think we said, could we uh, replete with IV calcium or replete hypocalcemia, the IV calcium. And they said, that's a board question. No, (laughs) because of uh, concern for calcium phosphate crystals. So amazing. I feel like you just provided such a fantastic overview of kind of the pathophysiology and then how that ties into treatment, which always makes it a lot easier for it to sink in. Let's kind of jump back from talking about tumor lysis syndrome. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that sidebar. Um, And just Jumping back to leukemia in general, can you talk a little bit about the management both from a therapy side, but also from a communication side? Yeah, probably one of the most valuable parts of this whole episode for me was how Dr. Watt talks about really heavy, difficult topics with families. She said that parents immediately are going to think if when they hear leukemia, that their child is going to die. And that is natural. They hear cancer, and you need to keep this in mind as their uh, healthcare provider. She kind of frames it as this way of as you're talking them through the the process that hopefully um, this will just be a bad memory in their in their past. Um, but she also recommends tell, telling them that you promise to always be honest with them, and if you're concerned, you're going to tell them, and and so that they kind of have that baseline level of trust with you. And I think to that point of honesty, she emphasized that as much as caregivers are going to desperately want you to say this, you never can promise that the child will be okay, that it's very reasonable to continually say, that's my goal, that's my hope, that's what we're working towards, but making sure that whatever you are communicating to the family is not a promise you can't keep. And I think, honestly, that's a communication tip that goes for everything we do, and then kind of going in the opposite direction of, you know, communicating about the heaviness is also providing this foundation for the families to, once the diagnosis maybe has sunk in a little bit, make life as normal as possible for the child. That, you know, the hope, the goal is that this child is going to live a relatively normal, long life. And so you want to make that child's childhood as normal as possible, with the exception of, of course, if they have, um, a significant neutropenia or something that is putting them at high risk, in which case you have to make some modifications. Yeah, I love that. I loved how, I mean, that gave me like a view into how close the family becomes with the oncology team. It's like, we're going to let you know when there's some times that you need to be extra cautious. But in general, we want you to make this childhood as normal as possible. And I think it's a good note for those of us that work in general pediatrics as well. I think when you see that a child on their problem list has something like leukemia or our next topic, HIV, you're just so inclined to treat them differently. And we also have a role to play in showing kids that like, you know what, we're going to talk about the same developmental milestones. We're going to talk about the same behavioral issues that we talk about with other kids because that's the the goal and the hope for these kiddos. Absolutely. And, you know, she she told us about 
what we can expect for general and just to back up a second, she talked mostly about treatment for ALL because it is the most common type of leukemia. Um, and because it's just, it's the one that we're going to see the most. And frankly, it's also the one that has the best prognosis. She told us that for those patients, they're going to have between two and a half to three years of outpatient chemotherapy. It's going to be very intensive at the beginning. They're going to be coming in for weekly, weekly chemotherapy. And then hopefully they can move more to like a once a month type of schedule after that. So their life becomes, you know, hopefully more and more normal as they get farther and farther away from the diagnosis. And do you want to just speak really, really briefly to the complications here? Yeah, I mean, the the big complication she came back to again and again is infection. Um, you know, she said, basically, if, it, you know, febrile neutropenia is its own topic. But if, if there's a fever that's persistently above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's an emergency. And um, it's time to go to the emergency room. And, you know, she didn't, we, we were talking about like, uh, well, what if they got Tylenol? And, you know, what if it's 99.8? And uh, I think kind of take home on that is if you're going back and forth, you know, it's probably best to get checked out and ask the patient to get checked out um, in, in that case. Okay. Any any last thoughts to share there? I feel like we just rounded up a very big, very intense and heavy and jam-packed episode. Yeah. She <laughs> left me. She left me hopeful. I mean, I will say this next one left me even more hopeful. Well, let's let's jump into it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. And so, can you tell us about this one, Sydney? Yeah, absolutely. So, we're going to jump to our other episode for this fables from the crib side. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it could be for the crib side as well if you would like to pay, for play sure. it for your small children. I'm sure this is just what they want to fall asleep to. Um, so, this <laughs> is the episode on HIV with the guest, Dr. Allison Agu, and it was written and produced by um, Martha Brucato. So just kind of starting out, the episode, I think, as Edward mentioned previously, focused predominantly on kind of that intrapartum and newborn management, and then also kind of jumped to what it looks like in adolescent patients with a new diagnosis. But we'll start in that pre-intrapartum period. So she was talking, she started from the very basics of when are you testing a expecting mother? And she was saying, test everyone first and third trimester. She emphasized the fact that people that are pregnant still have sex. There's still the possibility of getting a new infection. And furthermore, the, the likelihood of condom use is potentially decreased during pregnancy because they're already pregnant. She also talked about the fact that if, you know, kind of the risk of transmission to the baby is very dependent on where mom is at in terms of her treatment. And so very much like messages that I feel like have been going around about undetectable is untransmittable when it comes to HIV in general, if mom is fully suppressed for the full pregnancy, there's actually an extremely low risk of transmission to the baby, mm. which again, mm. that's, you know, one of those messages of hopefulness. It's not by any means a defined passage. And the risk is, of course, higher if mom is not treated. The risk is about 25 to 40% of transmission, but the risk actually drops significantly if there is intrapartum use of AZT. And then she was also talking a little bit about 
if the viral load is, if mom's viral load is very high, more than a thousand, that's the conditions in which you would strongly consider a C-section to reduce transmission risk. So one thing that I think was very helpful that she emphasized is don't test an antibody. The antibody is going to be positive because the baby still has circulating antibodies from mom. So it's just going to show that the mom was positive and baby was exposed. But instead, you should be doing nucleic acid testing, DNA or RNA. And the timing she typically does for this is at birth and then again at 14 to 21 days, 1 to 2 months, and 4 to 6 months. And if the test remains negative at that four to six month mark and baby is not breastfeeding, so there's not that risk of ongoing transmission, you can assume the baby is negative and stop your prophylaxis. Which, talking about prophylaxis, Dr. Agu was emphasizing that post-exposure prophylaxis is used in any of these babies with the risk for exposure. And everyone, pretty much all of the babies are going to get AZT and then higher risk based on mom's viral load are also going to get navirapine. And then on the opposite end, right, because that's the post-exposure prophylaxis is supposing that baby is testing negative. Meanwhile, if the baby does test positive, you're going to start treatment as soon as possible. And the baby will usually be seen by ID for the first one to two months by ID every one to two months because they are going to need frequent lab checks and dose adjustments as they grow. Edward, you had some interesting thoughts about just like talking to the family about the test being positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like the leukemia episode and now the HIV episode, these are like our communication episodes. And Dr. Agu made the point of when you tell parents that their baby has HIV, because this has been such a stigmatized condition with so much focus on it for so many years, that may be the only thing they hear of the entire appointment. So of course you need to be in person and sitting when you say that, but just expect that maybe they're not gonna hear next steps or when they need to come back or what they need to do or risk factors. So if there's one other thing she recommends making sure that they do hear before they leave, it's your baby's gonna be okay. And she said that even some patients she saw 15 years ago tell her that that's the thing they remember from the day that that they heard that their baby had yeah, HIV. So many good communication pearls in both of these episodes, absolutely, for things that are really hard to communicate about. Kind of to the point of stigma around it, there was a really interesting conversation about breastfeeding because obviously breastfeeding does con- – it. supposing that mom is not fully suppressed, breastfeeding does confer some risk of transmission to the baby – but Dr. Agu was pointing out that in some parts of the world, exclusive breastfeeding is actually the safer option because water isn't safe. So water for mixing formula is not the safer option for the baby and breastfeeding is a safer option. Furthermore, in some cultures, if you're choosing not to breastfeed, that serves as a signal that there's something wrong with you or wrong with the baby and draws attention that can be traumatic. And so she was talking a little bit about the the guidelines being it's an area of emerging ambiguity that certainly guidelines typically advise against it because there's that risk of transmission, but then recognizing that there are situations where perhaps benefit outweighs risk. And furthermore, that if the mom is undetectable, perhaps there's no good reason not to allow for breastfeeding. That said, if Mm. mom is breastfeeding, it is important to continue to test for infection until the baby is fully weaned. Got it. Got it. And uh, Sydney, you know, if I'm like the primary care pediatrician who's seeing a patient who has a previous already diagnosis of HIV, what did Dr. Agu say 
some things that I should be thinking about. Yeah, I I appreciated her bringing it kind of back home to things that are applicable to anyone who works with children. So for the most part, kind of similar to our conversation on leukemia, it was treat them like a normal baby, do the baby stuff, do the milestones, do the runny noses, like you know, she doesn't want to be doing the day-to-day, not that she wouldn't be happy to do it, but like her job is specifically to focus on the HIV and our job is to focus on all of the other things that are going on with this kid. Um, the one exception to this is you do need to know your patient's level of immunosuppression because that is going to affect affect the timing of when you give those live vaccines and then also how what your level of concern is for opportunistic infections. And then another primary care consideration that Dr. Agu discussed was when you're then as the kid's getting older, that you need to have a conversation with the parent about how and when you're going to disclose this information to the child. It's important both because at some point a kid's going to be like, why am I taking this medication? And they need to understand why for the sake of continuing to take it, as well as there's a lot of mental health thoughts around having something hidden from a child as well as having a child figure out how to manage having a chronic disease. Um, She says on average, she encourages families to begin to discuss it around age 10, but that it's very individual based on the specific kid. And probably it's not a one-time discussion. It's going to continue as the kid gets older, as they begin to learn more about their bodies, more about various aspects of their lives, and their their fundamental understanding will shift with it. For sure. I mean, this is not a topic that I would have thought about really at all unless I had listened to this episode. So quick plug for the episode. But also she, you know, she pointed out that like it might seem easier to wait and, you know, maybe you could wait until the child's a teenager or or they uh, have more life experience. But really, as they have more and more years being alive and in our society, unfortunately, they're also going to have more and more years of outdated stigma in their experience. And so Dr. Agu said, you know, we need to consider that they may learn they are HIV positive at age 14, 15, and then have a negative stigma associated with themselves after that. And so that could be a big problem. Um, So like, like Sydney said, I mean, um, she said, you know, 10 is the average, but the earlier, the better. And it's, it's very specific to each family. It's so nuanced and it's such a valuable thing to begin to think about. Um, And I agree, it's definitely not something that I would have begun to think about. So she also took us kind of to the next step, right? Like, or not not even the next step, but just like a different scenario of it being an adolescent who's feeling ill. Like, when did she say that we should have HIV on our differential? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really sobering and important reminder that basically anytime a adolescent is presenting with flu-like illnesses, having acute retroviral syndrome on the differential is appropriate. And then testing for this, you do have to wait a little while for testing to become positive. So again, you have it on the differential, you may want to even discuss it as a possibility there, but then you wait about seven to 10 days from the start of symptoms and you she recommends doing fourth generation testing, which is the antibody antigen testing. And then if that is negative, but you continue to have a high suspicion, doing a viral load is very appropriate. Um, she also talked about a lot of times because flu-like illnesses are so common in this population, you're not going to catch that acute retroviral syndrome. And so she talked a lot about 
screening of kids. And she recommended checking kids and adults annually starting at age 13 until she said age 64 and that you really normalize this. Her suggestion was not to make a big deal about it, that this is what we do and we're going to, you know, that's the plan. Let's do it. Yeah. And of note, like, you know, the USPSTF, it is an A recommendation to screen for HIV, but they don't set an interval. What they say is they recommend repeat screening in patients who have more risk factors. And Dr. Agu talked about this also. Um, So some of those risk factors, men who have sex with men, uh, people who use IV drugs, uh, people who have frequent unprotected sex, either anal or vaginal. And yeah, I liked how she framed it. She, She don't, you know, don't, it's not calling the patient a high risk patient. It's that some of the factors um, uh, in the patient's life confer a higher risk for this condition. So they're going to be screened more often. So can you tell us about PrEP? Yeah, I love talking about PrEP um, and goes very nicely from the screenings. So at this point in time, we have two approved meds for PrEP, uh, PrEP standing for pre-exposure prophylaxis. The first is Truvada, which is approved for any body parts, any type of sexual intercourse or potential exposure. And the other is Descovy, which um, excludes specifically patients who are having receptive vaginal sex. And both of them are very simple regimens, one pill a day. I think I don't always think about this with adolescence. And so it's important to recognize this is approved for patients above 35 kilograms. So that is going to be the vast majority of our adolescent patients, of our patients who are having sex or um, moving in that direction. And she did talk prior, of course, for PrEP, there's a ton of guidelines out there, but um, she talked about doing labs prior of you will do HIV testing, creatinine, hepatitis B testing, and a STI panel. And one thing that she said that I had not heard before, but I thought was really interesting, again, in terms of risk reduction, was that in her opinion, you didn't necessarily have to wait for the results of that HIV test to start PrEP. Her thought was that one to two days of the medication before you get those diagnostic results is just not the end of the world. And I think that may run contrary to what guidelines say, but I I do think it's a really interesting point of if now is the time you can get a patient started, get them comfortable with it, it may be worth considering that. And then generally for patients on PrEP, she recommends uh, every three-month follow-up and you do repeat HIV testing at that time. And the PrEP is in the news as well right now because it's been brought up in recently on an episode of the curbsiders i don't know what episode this is from it was it was described as a potential eradication of hiv as we know it uh is on the horizon if we do it right and that's because in december 2021 the fda approved a bi-monthly injectable cabotegravir which is good job (laughs) (laughs) i practiced that 10 times in the past (laughs) hour, but it's every eight, you know, prep could eventually for some people can be every eight weeks injected. Something that we have to keep in mind right now, though, is that it is not currently affordable in developing countries. And um, as far as I'm concerned, there's no, no current plans to make this a generic medication. So um, the figures I saw most recently are that it's four times more expensive than oral prep in developing countries certainly going to be difficult to achieve that cost. So I think those prices are going to have to come down and a lot of work is going to have to be done to make sure that it's it's accessible to everybody on earth. 
I love that as an ending note. I feel like that allows us to end on a cautiously optimistic note for a two heavy topics. Two heavy topics, I think two important topics, but hopefully, you know, they definitely had something in common, which is that uh, I took a lot of communication pearls from these very experienced clinician educators uh, on, on both of these heavy topics. Shout out to our fantastic resources and uh, experts that we have had the opportunity to, to hear from and learn from. All right. So let's, let's close it out. All right. <laughs> okay. So this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, ourselves, and the original producers <laughs> and the original producers of these episodes, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Edward Wallace Cordy. I've been Sydney Houseman Engel. Thank you. Thank you. And, and good night. Good night. <laughs> hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.